Good morning. It's great to see you in worship this morning. Early at 8.15-ish, it's uh, the time of the season where we are gathered with family, and that's no exception for us today as the family of God, called by his name to gather and to celebrate who he is, to celebrate what he's done in our lives and in the world. So that's why we gather today. Let's uh, dive into our time of the Word here with some prayer at the beginning. Lord God, we, as your people, are in the middle of a time that is hectic. About a week before Christmas, many folks start expressing, Lord, that we're tired of the busyness that the distractions are so many. So, Father, we, we relish this opportunity. We want to take advantage of this place and this time together so that we could leave those at the door, so that your Spirit could speak to us, so that as we gather to study your Word, you would shut out all that keeps us from full worship and adoration of you. So, Lord, we ask for your leading and your guidance that the gathered people of God today are here because you promised you'd meet with us. And so, Lord, we wait, we expect, we hope, we faithfully act in accordance with what we know you have done and will do. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us this lesson this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, I alluded to it for just a second there in the prayer. Uh, this idea of promises and expectations is something that a lot of us live with in our lives in ways that affect us. They're filters for us in our relationships with one another. Our expectations have a lot to do with how we interact with one another. Whether or not we're disappointed, whether or not we're hopeful, And the problem is, the rub is that for sinful humans, for people like us, promises are hard to keep. Expectations are hard to meet. In fact, when we think about it, they're really impossible for us to meet for one another. There was a man who was in a hot air balloon who realized he was lost. He was wandering in his hot air balloon and he reduced his altitude to try to find somebody because he spotted a woman below and he descended a bit more in his hot air balloon and he shouted to this woman, excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend I would meet him an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. I'm not sure why he's traveling in a hot air balloon, but he is. So the woman below replied, well, you're in a hot air balloon, (laughs) hovering approximately 30 feet above the ground. You're between 40 and 41 degrees north latitude and between 59 to 60 degrees west longitude. Wow, said the balloonist, you must be an engineer. I am, replied the woman. How did you know? Well, the balloonist said, everything you told me is technically correct, but I have no idea what to make of your information, and the fact is I'm still lost after you've told me everything. Frankly, you've been no help at all. Well, apparently she didn't meet his expectations. 
So the woman below responded smartly, you must be in management. And the guy in the balloon said, I am. How did you know? Well, said the woman, you don't know where you are and where you're going. You've risen to where you are due to a large quantity of hot air. You've made a promise which you've no idea how to keep, and you expect people beneath you to solve your problems for you. The fact is, you are in exactly the same position you were before we met, but now somehow it's my fault. (laughs) Doesn't that sort of sound like how we respond in life and relationships with expectations and, and promises to keep? Isn't that kind of how we respond in life? And, and, and it's easy to get there, isn't it? It's easy to get to that place. And how does it help anyone, especially our own situation, if we sit around blaming other people, getting technical about where our balloons are? Does it do anybody any good to sit around and blame one another for every disappointment we feel? That's what happens when we expect from sinful people what we can only receive from a perfect God. It's part of the human condition. It's what happens when we expect from people what you can only expect from perfect God. Fortunately, God, (laughs) unlike people, made some pretty big promises long ago. And the amazing thing is that he keeps, he kept, and he will keep every promise he's ever made. And he will keep every iota of promise made perfectly in ways that we don't even begin to see this side of heaven. There are ways in which he will keep promises far beyond our greatest conceptions of them this side of heaven. And we'll continue to learn the ways he's kept his promises when we spend eternity with him. I look forward to hearing stories of how God kept his promises in ways that aren't even accounted for us in Scripture. You see, faithfulness on his part, faithfulness on the part of God to keep his promises is what equips us, this side of heaven, to live lives of faithfulness. His faithfulness is what equips us, this side of heaven, to live lives of faithfulness. In the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi assured those who love God, he said, that the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. That's a promise. Isaiah had prophesied before that, as we've studied already the past couple weeks. But the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and there would come a time when a voice of one calling, John the Baptist, would say, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And in the final words of the Old Testament, another promise of God made through Malachi. He said, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So the people of God knew that God was a God of promises. The people of God had some expectations. They'd been expecting Elijah or a prophet like him to come and to announce that Messiah had arrived. They were expecting someone like Elijah or Elijah himself appearing to say, the kingdom of God has arrived now. But ever since, 
Malachi spoke those words. There had been 400 years of silence from God. Just, just imagine that. Your God's people, who had been promised not only a homeland of safety, but a Savior from your sin, and the last time God spoke to you was 400 years ago. That feels like a long time. You begin to ask questions of yourself like, what about God's promises to drive out evil? What about his plan to bring salvation for me? What about his promises to bring blessing to my people? These are the kinds of questions they were asking in these 400 years of silence. And what we celebrate with the advent, the first coming of Christ, is that he provided an answer. He continued to remain faithful. And here, where we meet Elizabeth today, we see that God is back in action. Just like John the Baptist, just like Mary, just like Joseph, all of these people that we see in the first couple chapters of Luke here, God is demonstrating that he is back in action remaining faithful to what he had promised. And the appearance of the angel Gabriel is a sign that God's plan is now full steam ahead. And Gabriel appears to a man and a woman who waited for God to fulfill their expectations. Hello, my name is Elizabeth. You probably don't know me, I am the daughter of Aaron, and I married a godly man from my own tribe, so I'm not well known. But you probably know my husband, Zachariah, the priest. He's the one everyone's been talking about. You know, the one who went into the temple to burn incense, and when he came out, he couldn't speak a word. That's my Zachariah. Ever since he came home, it's been very quiet around the house. Not just because of that. But you see, we never had any children. It's just Zachariah and me, just the two of us. Um, it's not like we didn't try to have children. Believe me, we did. It's, you just don't know how many times I prayed myself to sleep, begging Jehovah to listen to me. If not for me, then for his servant Zechariah, who is bearing the shame of not having a son. You see, when we were younger, Zachariah would say we had plenty of time. But now that we're older, people are beginning to talk. They say we have hidden sin for which God is punishing us. Some say Zachariah shouldn't even be a priest anymore. But we are faithful servants to Jehovah. And my faith in him grows stronger every day especially since Zechariah came home from the temple. You see, he's a changed man, and he keeps trying to tell me something. And that something is the miracle that we are going to have a child. One's expectations can make the difference between hope or disappointment. For the people of God, expectations 
or the difference between living with hope and optimism that seeks God's work at every turn and living with constant gripes and a morose pessimism that doesn't really expect God to do a thing. And you know, that's where a lot of people are. A lot of people who follow God where He leads seem to be stuck in the dullness of Israel's faithlessness during that 400 years of silence. It's like Jesus says in explaining Israel's unfaithfulness in Matthew, the 13th chapter. He's quoting Isaiah the prophet, and he's saying, you will indeed hear, but never understand. He's talking about the people of Israel, his own people. You will indeed hear, but never understand. Indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed. Fortunately, we have examples like Elizabeth and Zechariah, who show us what it means to live with faithful expectation that Jesus' first coming can be a model for us to live in faithful expectation for his second coming. You see, biblical waiting isn't sitting around, twiddling your thumbs, waiting for God to show up to prove himself. Waiting on God in biblical terms means experiencing him proved through our active involvement in what he's doing. If you're taking notes, that's the gist of what we're saying today. That is that biblical waiting is experiencing God proved through our active involvement in what he's doing. Dr. Bonner, Horatius Bonner, was a a well-known preacher for a long time. He used to draw his curtains closed at night and repeat to himself these words. He would draw the curtains closed and he would say, perhaps tonight, Lord, and go to bed, waiting to see if Jesus would come. And he would get up in the morning, expecting the Lord to return at any moment, opening up the blinds, the shades, and as he looked out on the dawn of a new day, he would say, perhaps today, Lord, perhaps today. Today. That's the kind of attitude we're called to have, like Elizabeth, like Zechariah, like the people who came before us. Do we live with that kind of expectation? Perhaps today, Lord. If you have a Bible handy, and I hope you do, I'd like to invite you to turn to Luke, the first chapter. We're in page. 723 in the Pew Bible. We'll start at the beginning of Luke, the first chapter, the first four verses there, and just uh, use that as an introduction for our passage uh, today. We've heard from Elizabeth. We're going we're to talk about Zechariah, and then we're going to hear from Elizabeth again in just a moment here. <clears throat> Luke is writing this book. He's writing this gospel, as we call it, to tell people that the Savior is worth the wait. That's the basic gist of Luke's gospel, that the Savior is worth the wait. And at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we sort of go from from big picture down to the specific story where we are today with Elizabeth and with Zechariah. The specific story of a couple and their unique experience of the Advent story. It's like playing Google Earth on the computer or, or the beginning of a movie when the camera starts with the cosmic picture that looks at the whole planet and then comes down through the clouds, then shows the panorama of the city and flies down into one specific family and shows us 
what happened in their experience of what God was doing in the world. From verse 5 to 13, we see that kind of panorama focused down to Elizabeth and Zechariah. It's like we're going from 400 years of silence, and Luke is saying, remember these promises, and I have written to you now, it says this in the first few verses here, to compile a narrative. He's going to tell that story of things that have been accomplished among us. He's telling the history. And he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And so he says, verse 3, I'm going to write an orderly account for you that you may have certainty, that you may know that God works as he's promised and will continue to so that you can live in that expectant faithfulness. Look at verse 5 there. We pick up this story with Elizabeth there. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. He just mentions Elizabeth a little bit here, uh, but mostly he's going to focus on Zechariah. Now, in this verse here, Luke is careful to tell us that both Elizabeth and Zechariah were from the same line of people. Priests who were of that division were to marry daughters of that same lineage, daughters of Aaron, because he was a priest from the line, the tribe of Aaron. That was part of ensuring that the Messiah would come from the promised line and that the people of that line were ready when it came, when it was time. So verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, both Elizabeth and Zechariah, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Remember last week with Mary, we talked about how God works best in the lives of people who prepare for his coming. Elizabeth and Zechariah are no exception to that principle. They were faithful and righteous people who walked blamelessly, as it says, in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Verse 7, but, but, Luke is introducing here the tension of the story. The problem they had was no child. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Luke reports that this devout couple was childless, uh, barren. This is a story that is shown many times throughout Scripture. At least uh, five or six examples uh, that I've come up with, Jacob and Rachel, Abraham and Sarah, uh, Manoah and his wife, Elkanah and uh, Hannah, Isaac and Rebekah. Couple after couple with this same problem, this same complication. And, and, and they're called to bear children. They're called to bless the world. They're called to keep up their part of the covenant to fill the earth and subdue it. And so as they're doing that, they can't have kids, which for them is traumatic. Many of you have experienced that kind of thing before. It was a problem because the bearing of children for the people of God, was considered a great blessing. It was essential for many reasons, one of which was carrying on the family name, uh, also for perpetuating God's covenant. It was, it was one of the main ways the people of God perpetuated their part of the deal with God. And also, it was part of providing insurance for oneself in one's old age. So barrenness was regarded as a tragedy, especially by other people who misnamed it as something as punishment from God. Verse 8, Now while he, that's Zechariah, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, 
according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot. He was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. The priests were divided into groups, and these groups were chosen uh, by rolling the dice. If you hadn't yet gotten to go in, you were put on the list, and they kept this list of those who had not yet gotten in. And these groups would serve for about two weeks a year, and it's the kind of thing where there were so many priests that if you were chosen, it was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. So him being chosen here is a a once-in-a-lifetime thing for him. He got to go in to that place in the temple that is as close to the Holy of Holies as you can get unless you were the high priest. And so he's in that sanctuary. He's not in the Holy of Holies, but he's in the inner sanctuary where not very many people get to go. And he burns the incense as part of his duties as a priest. And verse 10, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. The incense uh, was symbolic of the prayers of the people of God going up. It was also symbolic of the presence, the Spirit of God among the people. And so when they smelled that incense, it reminded them of God and His presence among them. And while He is there, verse 11, in the sanctuary inside, there appeared to Him, to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Common response in Scripture to an angel would be mine. Verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not eat He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. John the Baptist was going to be set apart, a Nazarite, as we learn about in Numbers 6. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from the time of his mother's womb. We'll see that show itself later on in the story. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. Now, now notice... John the Baptist comes first to the people of Israel, calling them to repentance first. He will go before him, that is, John will go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah, just like Malachi's prophecy, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord, a key phrase here, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Remember we talked last week about how Mary had a soft heart, prepared to hear from God what her calling was to be. And that God works best in the lives of people who are ready to hear Him. So John's responsibility was to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. At which point, I think if I were the angel, I would have said, 
You will know it because I just told you and I'm an angel. Which is kind of functionally what Gabriel says. Zechariah is indignant. He's skeptical. He's been praying and praying and praying and praying. And his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in the inside of the sanctuary where very few people get to go and an angel of the Lord, Gabriel, who he knows from Scripture, he knows from the past, appears to him and then he says, How will I know? You will know because I'm an angel and I just told you. And you've been praying and you've been expecting. And how is it that knowing what you know and praying what you've prayed, this is a surprise to you when I tell you this is going to happen? I'm sure he was scared. Maybe he just was wondering about the biology of the situation being advanced in years. Who knows? But we know that the angel Gabriel didn't exactly consider Zechariah's skepticism as an acceptable response. Because apparently, Gabriel considers it a lack of faith. Gabriel answers with these strong words in verse uh, 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. It's a forceful kind of response. Verse 20, And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which have been fulfilled in your time. Fulfilled in their time. You've prayed, you've expected. In that inner part of the sanctuary where few get to go and an angel appears and we doubt we doubt like Zechariah having prayed for this he is nonetheless startled and skeptical when it actually happens isn't that where a lot of us end up not so much expecting God to do a whole lot so we stay back in our comfortable little space. Not really expecting God to do what he was saying he would do. Zechariah is a good model and he's a bad model. He's a model of faithlessness. But he's also a model of faithfulness. And he sounds a lot like us. I mean, here's the story of a priest who was praying fervently, but was not prepared when his prayers were actually answered. Officiating in the sanctuary itself, but he didn't really expect to experience God's presence. And so he was surprised when it happened. Our cynical response is often like Zechariah's, how will I know that it is so? The answer to that question, as always, is to witness and to be a witness to what God has done and what God continues to do in our midst. Maybe one of the lessons is that that God speaks to and is made known to those who look for him. Thankfully, Zechariah's wife Elizabeth is just like that. Faithfully awaiting God to show up. She's a model for us of expectant living, of working while waiting.
So after years of waiting and dreaming and praying, we are pregnant. And when I thought things couldn't get any better for us, they did. I had a visitor. Mary came to see me. And as soon as she spoke, my baby jumped for joy in me. And then then the strangest thing happened. The Spirit of the Lord came upon me. And immediately I knew why my baby reacted as it did. I shouted to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of the Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of her greeting reached my ears, the babe in my womb jumped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Mary said that she's going to stay with us for three months. Can you believe it? The Messiah for whom we have waited is coming now. Zachariah and I have waited many, many years for a son, and now he is to come. God has answered our prayers. Our nation has waited and waited for many years for the Savior, for the Son, and now he is to come as well. God has answered our prayers for the world. The time has come. Within a year, Emmanuel will truly be with us. It was worth the wait. Famous missionary says these words. Many Christians estimate their difficulties in light of their own resources and thus attempt little and often fail in the little they attempt. Many Christians estimate difficulties in the light of their own resources and thus attempt little and often fail in the little they attempt. We sit here Worshipping the Christ child. Because generation after generation after generation after generation of saints who have come before us did not attempt little. They lived lives where waiting on God did not mean sitting around and hoping a miracle would happen. It meant acting, knowing that miracles would happen. So let Christmas, let Advent, let the coming of Christ into our hearts again be an opportunity for us as people called by His name to live an expectation that we can risk everything for the sake of the Gospel like those who have come before us. May we not be those who estimate our own difficulties in light of our resources, but who live lives, who see what we have and who we are in relief to who He is and what He's done. We can remain faithful. We can risk everything we have because we serve a God who has demonstrated time and time and time again 
through people like Elizabeth and Zechariah, that he is faithful and he will continue to remain faithful to us. So may we be encouraged because of that testimony. Today, tomorrow, next day, maybe, will be a day the Lord has made for us so that we can seek in each moment to join our activities to be part of the fulfillment of what God's doing in the world. Do you, do you see your life in that kind of kingdom economy like Elizabeth did? Like Zechariah did? So that each moment of our lives is an opportunity to join our activities into what he's doing in the world to bring about redemption. His faithfulness through the people before us is what proves that we can do that too. Let's pray.